Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am covering a case from 1991 that absolutely shook Austin, Texas to its core when Sergeant John Jones got the call that the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop was on fire and soon discovered the bodies of four teenage girls inside. Their cases were collectively coined the Yogurt Shop Murders, and it's one of the most notorious and puzzling cases from Austin to this day. These cases are complicated and tragic. There is a large list of witnesses and a large list of suspects. There's a lot of bad police work, there are multiple confessions, overturned convictions, and DNA that still needs further testing. But most importantly, there are four victims and three families that have been waiting a long time for justice. This is going to be a very detailed deep dive being told in multiple parts. So let's get into it because we have a lot to cover. The four victims in this case are 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, her 15-year-old sister Sarah Harbison, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, and the youngest, 13-year-old Amy Ayers. Let's start with some background on the victims beginning with Sarah and Jennifer Harbison. Their parents, Mike and Barbara, were high school sweethearts and they later married. They were originally from New Boston in East Texas near the Arkansas border, but they later settled in Austin so Mike could enroll in divinity courses to pursue his graduate degree. The deal was that Mike would go back to school while Barbara worked. And once he graduated, they would all move back to New Boston. But Barbara really liked Austin, and she thought that she and her daughters would have more opportunities and an overall better quality of life there. So, when Sarah was two and a half and Jennifer was five, she took the kids and moved back to Austin. Barbara had the girls pretty young, and she would be described as being more like a sister to them than a mother. She would later meet and marry a man named Frank Sirachi in 1980. They lived a very quiet but fulfilling life, with Frank working as a technician for Dell Computers and Barbara working as a credit officer at Team Bank. For most of their lives, Sarah and Jennifer attended a Catholic private school, but they asked to go to a public school for their high school years. In 1990, the family would move from a less desirable neighborhood in Austin to what they considered to be a better, safer neighborhood in the northwestern area of the city. And this was just a few miles from Lanier High School where the girls would go to school. Jennifer Harbison began her senior year at Lanier just months before her death and was very popular, social, and outgoing. She actually was a very tiny girl, standing at just 5 feet tall and weighing only 86 pounds. She was also very active, with her mother saying that Jennifer just hated sitting still. She was a relay runner on the varsity track team, and she was the district vice president of the Future Farmers of America, and president of her school's FFA chapter. And a part of being in that program was that you actually had to raise animals, so her and her sister Sarah, who was also a part of the program, were actually raising sheep to show at the annual Austin Livestock Show and Rodeo the following spring. 
Here are Sarah and Jennifer's parents talking a bit more about their girls. Jennifer and Sarah shared a passion, FFA, raising sheep. And the funny thing is, uh, they uh, they really just love those animals in the first and second place because they, you know, they just love them. They we got just pictures of them just kissing yeah. them on the face, and I mean, nose to nose with these lambs. They're so funny. Gosh, they're funny. Frank and Barbara erected a shrine in their home to honor the girls. The table is littered with pictures and memories. They still do not believe their girls are gone. They know someday the killers will be caught. Do they have any qualms about the death penalty? Not at all. Not at all. As long as it's slow and painful, and they're scared, and they suffer. Yeah, because they, he scared my baby girls. Those people scared my baby girls. And my baby girls <clears throat> would not have hurt anyone, ever. I think God would give us this one. I, I think he would give us this one. Sarah Harbison was only a few months into her sophomore year at Lanier High School. But it seems that, like her big sister Jennifer, Sarah also enjoyed staying busy. Because in addition to her being in the FFA, she also played volleyball and basketball. Here are Sarah's parents describing a bit more about her specifically. When she played with St. Louis, she was, her claim to fame was not her scoring, but that she fouled out every game. Uh, she was a cheerleader in the eighth grade, so she would... She would go to a ball game and the girls would play and then she'd run back into the locker rooms and change into a cheerleading outfit and come out and cheer for the boys' game. Which was okay, unless it was tournament time. And then she would play, cheer, play, cheer. Sarah also had a new boyfriend of just about three weeks who had given her his senior ring. It was gold with his initials on one side, a tractor on the other, and a green stone in the middle. Sarah would wear this ring on the night of her death, putting it next to her Mickey Mouse watch on a pile of clothing found near her body. But she would never take off her gold cross necklace. Sarah's best friend was Amy Ayers, the youngest of all four girls. Amy was born in Johnson County, Texas to her parents Pamela and Bob, and she had an older brother named Sean. The family has been described as quiet, reserved, and religious. Amy spent a lot of time on their family ranch and had been riding horses since she was three years old. Her father has stated that she could ride from sunup until sundown without getting tired or bored. Amy was also known to put leashes on pigs and take them for walks. When reporters asked her father if she was a cowgirl, he responded, no, she's all cowgirl. When she grew up, she wanted to be a veterinarian, and Amy's biggest crush was George Strait, whose posters were plastered all over the walls of her bedroom. Here are her parents describing a little bit more about Amy. used to kind of bother her because she was always a country girl, and I told her, I said, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. What does this room reflect of her? Well, I think it shows you some of her interests, George Strait. <laughs> He's on every wall here in the room. Um, she was an animal lover. She uh, really loved cats, and horses were probably her favorite of, of the animals. So we've got stuffed animals of all kinds to go with that. Um, she uh, spent a lot of time in here just by herself, played her stereo with all of her country-western music. She's always liked country-western. She's never been a rock-and-roll fan. Mm -hmm. And would spend, uh, do her homework in here, sitting at her desk with her country music going. By 1985, the family moved to Austin. 
1991, Amy was still in the 8th grade, but she planned on attending Lanier High School the next year. And after some encouragement from her older brother, Sean, who was already in the FFA, she was accepted into the program as a junior member. And Amy did extremely well. She was actually quickly nominated to be the vice president of the chapter. This is where Amy met her new best friend, Sarah Harbison, and her sister, Jennifer. They just hit it off from the first time they met, and then once that happened, you didn't see one without the other at the livestock show. You didn't have to worry about those two when they were together. You knew that they, they were going to have a good time, but you didn't have to worry about what they were going to get into. They were going to be, be safe in, in, in what they did. They had, they had a ball together, laughed and giggled. <laughs> really a good time. This small choice to join the FFA and to befriend Sarah would ultimately result in Amy's untimely death. The fourth victim was Eliza Thomas. Eliza was a beautiful brunette born to her parents James and Maria in Austin, Texas. A few years later, her sister Sonora was born, but by the time Eliza was seven, her parents divorced. Her parents shared custody of Eliza and Sonora until Eliza turned 14, when she could decide who she ultimately wanted to live with. Initially, she'd stay with her father, but in July of 1991, Eliza moved in with her mother while Sonora stayed behind with their father. But the sisters remained close. Eliza's future looked incredibly bright. She was an avid reader with a talent for language, and her parents fully believed that she would have grown up to be a poet or a writer of some kind. But her passion, like the other girls, was animals. She too was in the FFA and would be nominated for Queen like her best friend, Jennifer. Her project was a 254-pound pig named Stormy who needed twice-daily injections. Eliza took a job at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop at the Hillside Strip Mall working nights and weekends, making $4.35 an hour to supplement another job she had, taking a nine-year-old to gym lessons twice a week. Eliza held these jobs for a few reasons. The first being that Eliza had a car that she loved. It was a bright green 1971 VW Carmen Ghia, which she picked because it matched her emerald birthstone. Truth be told, you guys, I know next to nothing about cars. So I googled a 1971 VW Carmen Ghia, and I totally get why she was obsessed. It's very rounded and vintage and just cool looking. It's a car I would have loved to have at the age of 17. And Eliza was extremely mechanically inclined. She did her own repairs, and that year she told her parents that all she wanted for Christmas was car parts. But in addition to paying to keep her car running and in gas, Eliza also worked to not put any additional financial strain on her mother. See, not too long before this, Maria had actually switched career paths and was now making much less money as an artist assistant. Although Eliza loved being in the FFA and cars, she was also kind of a girly girl. In an interview not long after her death, cameras followed her mother Maria into Eliza's untouched bedroom and they showed her shelves filled with knickknacks and lipsticks, and Maria would describe how Eliza washed her face three times a day. She loved artwork. Her mother Maria and sister Sonora have left Eliza's room much the same way Eliza left it. She loved tiny little knickknacks, and as you can see, there's lipsticks there, and she's got tons and tons more. She used to love, she had the most beautiful mouth, you know, so she would always... I would buy her lots of lipsticks, and she would buy lots of lipstick. 
Eliza was fanatic about her complexion. She would wash her face two or three times a day. She always put her hair way up, you know, and then she'd have clips and then wash her face real good at night. And I can just still see her doing it. I've seen that Eliza wanted to be a veterinarian and that she wanted to be a model. Honestly, she probably could have done both. She was beautiful, bright, and determined. Eliza Thomas could have been whatever she wanted had her life not been cut so short. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by June's Journey. Everyone loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. In this game, you step into the role as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of your sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. I've been playing June's Journey for a long time. And yes, I love uncovering hidden objects in these really fun scenes, but I also like putting together the pieces of this puzzle. I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of my favorite parts of playing June's Journey is chatting and playing with or against, if I'm honest, usually I like playing against other players by joining a detective club. And if that's not enough for you, you can join a detective league to put your skills to the test. I am also deep into building my island. And I mean deep, you guys. I've been playing for a very long time and it's just really fun to see it grow. I usually find myself playing on little breaks during the day or at night before I go to bed. If you like games, if you like solving mysteries, I really think you're gonna like June's Journey. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by Quince. Quince has transformed how I shop. I'm not gonna lie, I don't love paying extravagant prices for things that don't last. But imagine upgrading your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. They offer things like a 100% Mongolian cashmere sweater for $50, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part is all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Basically what they do is partner with the top factories. That cuts out the cost of the middleman. That way they can pass on the savings to us. And what I really love is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I have a ton of stuff from Quince. Right now I'm really on a mission to just have some great basics in my closet. So I picked up a lot of t-shirts, some tank tops, and I definitely got a 100% mulberry silk pillowcase. It is absolutely worth it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. Following their deaths, countless newspaper articles would focus on just how unimaginable it was for something so horrific to happen in the Austin community, especially to these girls. These four girls that loved country music, animals, and their community. These four good girls. See, back in 1991, Austin still very much felt like a small town. Despite having a population of about 600,000, violent crime was low and people still trusted each other. 
But all of that changed after December 6, 1991, as countless newspapers reported on the innocence that was lost that night, the paranoia that spread through the community, and how terrified Austin should be since there was at least one brutal killer still on the loose. On the morning of Friday, December 6, 1991, Jennifer and Sarah Harbison drove in Jennifer's brand new dark blue Chevy S10 pickup to take care of their sheep that were being held in a barn on donated land about three miles from Lanier High School, just like they did every morning and every afternoon. So after taking care of the sheep, Sarah and Jennifer returned home to shower and went to school. After school, Jennifer gives Sarah's boyfriend a ride home, and they stop back at the barn for their final visit of the day. Eliza Thomas would also visit the barn that morning and presumably that afternoon to give her pig Stormy one of his two required daily injections. And Amy Ayers would attend her middle school like normal that day. Jennifer then dropped Sarah off at home and drove over to her boyfriend Sammy's apartment where he lived with his mother. Sammy actually missed school that day in order to attend his grandfather's funeral, so Jennifer really wanted to see him and to make sure that he was okay. Jennifer and Sammy often talked about their dreams that Sammy would get a basketball scholarship at a college that Jennifer could also attend, and that after graduation they could get married, have a family, and spend the rest of their lives together. But in addition to seeing Sammy, Jennifer also had plans to grab her wallet that she'd left at a friend's house and go back to school to fill out an application to run for FFA Queen after being nominated. She planned to be back home around 7pm to get ready for her 8pm shift at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop at the Hillside Strip Mall. See, a part of the deal with Jennifer having a brand new truck was that she would help her father, Mike Harbison, make the payments. She also had to agree to take her little sister Sarah wherever she wanted to go, and her friend Eliza Thomas, who had been working at the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop for months, told her to come work with her. After all, it was pretty easy and fun, and they would get to hang out even more than they already did. It seemed like a no-brainer, so Jennifer began working weekends at the shop. Around 4.30pm, Barbara remembers coming home from her job at Team Bank and seeing her daughter Sarah sitting on the couch peeling an orange. Sarah was in a very good mood because not only had her boyfriend just given her his senior ring, but she was excited for the weekend because she didn't have volleyball or basketball practice. So she told her mom that she had plans to go out that night to North Cross Mall. See, North Cross Mall was the place to be as a teenager in Austin in the early 90s. It had all of your mall staples, including an amazing food court, a movie theater, and even the only ice skating rink within 200 miles. In the 1970s, the mall was this premier luxury shopping center in Austin, even with former First Lady Lady Bird Johnson making an appearance at the mall. But by 1991, a lot of the higher-end stores closed. And the mall became a haven for teenagers, with the movie theater even catering to this new audience with midnight showings of Heavy Metal, Pink Floyd's The Wall, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, complete with a shadow cast to perform along with the movie. One thing I want to note right here is the alternative scene in Austin, because it will become relevant further along in the case. See, around this time, there was kind of an explosion in goth culture. And Austin police would commonly call any person that fit this goth description a pib or person in black. If you had an unnatural hair color or black or really anything considered alternative, you were deemed a pib. 
And around this time, the world was very much experiencing something that was often coined as satanic panic, where anyone who could be described as a pib or goth was instantly a terrible, scary Satan worshiper. And thus, on the radar of police when terrible things happened, such as four girls being murdered. So, keep that in mind as we go further into the case. But back to Sarah and the mall. The idea was that when Jennifer came back to get ready for work, she could take Sarah to pick up Amy from her house, then drop both girls off at the mall before her shift at I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. This would actually be the first time that either Sarah or Amy would go to the mall without being accompanied by their parents. But figuring they'd only be there for about two hours, Barbara didn't see any harm in letting the girls go. Around 9, when the mall closed, Jennifer would use her break to pick them back up and bring them back to the yogurt shop. That way, they could help Jennifer and Eliza close up the shop around 11, and then Jennifer would take both Sarah and Amy back to her house so Amy could spend the night. At this point, we're about 7 hours away from the fire. So, let's break down the timeline. Around 6.30pm, Eliza Thomas got home, changed into her I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt uniform of a white branded polo, dark jeans, and white Reeboks. She put her hair in a scrunchie, and she was out the door. Like Sarah Harbison, Eliza was also in a good mood that day because her and Jennifer had both been nominated for FFA Queen. But she was a little nervous about her shift. See, the night before, she'd actually covered another girl's shift at the yogurt shop. And she got a prank call from her ex-boyfriend, Roger Carduca's friend, who thought it would be clever to call the shop and ask about all the yogurt flavors, while Roger laughed hysterically in the background. But Eliza got to the yogurt shop on time at 7pm to start her shift and just had to hope that it didn't happen again. Following the very strict policies and procedures set by Bryce Foods, the parent company of I Can't Believe It's Yogurt, when Eliza entered the shop, she grabbed the keys from the top of the cash register and headed to the back of the shop to unlock the office door to put down her personal items. Then she locked the office door and put the keys back on top of the cash register. Soon after, the girl Eliza was working with finished her shift and left Eliza alone to run the store by herself until Jennifer got there at 8. As Eliza is starting her shift around 7, this is when Jennifer gets home and learns about this plan that Sarah and her mother put together for Jennifer to get her sister and Amy to and from the mall. So Jennifer agrees, not really having any other choice since she made that agreement with her father, and she quickly changes into her uniform of dark jeans, a white I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt polo, and her chosen athletic shoes, black high-top Reeboks. She also had on her black Timex watch that she always wore to make sure that she stayed on schedule. And Sarah wears a black denim jacket with a lightning bolt on the front. So Jennifer and Sarah go grab Amy, who is wearing her brother's leather bomber jacket, turquoise jeans, string friendship bracelets that never left her wrist, and a belt with a heart-shaped buckle on it. Amy also brings her Jiminy Cricket overnight bag and leaves it in the truck when Jennifer drops them off at the mall. From the North Cross Mall, Jennifer then heads to the Hillside Strip Mall to the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt Shop to begin her shift at 8pm. Eliza would work the cash register, and Jennifer would handle the counter. Like the North Cross Mall, the Hillside Strip Mall was also a pretty popular destination. But by this time, only three businesses were open. Mr. Gotti's Pizza, the Sun Harvest Grocery Store, and the Yogurt Shop. But they still received a decent amount of traffic. 
Between 8.15 and 8.30, 51-year-old Lucella Jones came into the shop noticing only two other cars in the parking lot, Jennifer and Eliza's. She also noticed two teenage boys sitting at the booth closest to the door. She said that they were possibly Hispanic, possibly white, and between 14 and 17 years old. And she described them as kind of looking like hippies. But she admits that she didn't really get a good look at their faces because they were kind of facing away from her. And they were apparently fixated on something she described as a small sack on the table that sounded like there were keys or marbles or something inside of it when they moved it. Lucella would later tell investigators that she wanted to ask the girls if they were okay working alone that late at night. But she saw that Eliza and Jennifer were talking and laughing, so she ignored that instinct and figured that they were probably fine. So she ordered a strawberry sundae to go for her husband, and she left. Around 9, Jennifer used her break to pick up Sarah and Amy from the mall. When they got back, Jennifer went back to work, and Sarah and Amy went to Mr. Gotti's to grab a pizza before they closed at 10. At about 9.30, Eliza's mother stopped by the shop to check on Eliza like she often did. But when she got there, Eliza was on the phone with her younger sister, Sonora, trying to convince her to ride her bike up to the shop to hang out. But Sonora was home alone and didn't want to leave without her father's permission, so she just stayed home. Eliza then hands the phone to her mom and gets back to work. Maria would later tell investigators that it was shortly after this that she saw two girls that were most likely Sarah and Amy come in the door with a pizza and sit down at a booth to eat. Other customers would also vaguely remember seeing two girls eating pizza in the shop that night as well. After Maria gets off the phone, the shop gets a call from Jennifer's boyfriend Sammy confirming their breakfast plans for the next morning. Between 9.30 and 10, 52-year-old Daryl Croft entered the yogurt shop. Daryl was an ex-military police officer, and he owned his own security company. So he was used to instantly evaluating situations and kind of just being more observant than most. He also knew Maria and Eliza because they all went to the same gym. Daryl says that he remembers seeing Maria by the cash register, a boy and a girl in a booth, and another couple close to the counter looking at the menu. But above all, he remembers a guy standing in line in front of him. Daryl would describe this man as white, young, and fidgety. Probably in his early to mid-twenties, 5'10 to 6 feet tall, and about 155 pounds. He was also wearing a green military-style jacket. Daryl actually parked the car he used for a security company out front, and it happened to have a row of lights across the top. After kind of stalling in line, possibly being unsure of what he wanted to order, this guy in line turned to Daryl and asked if that was his car and what he was. Was he security or was he the police? Daryl confirms that yes, it was his car, and he explains that he owns a security company. And the man just kind of nervously turned back around. But Daryl continues to watch this man closely, saying that he just had a weird feeling about him. So this unknown man in line eventually orders a 7-Up, but Jennifer tells them they only have Sprite, which is fine with him, so Jennifer puts the can of soda in a paper bag and sends him down to Eliza to be rung up. Immediately after this, he asks Eliza to use the bathroom, which meant he kind of had to go around the counter and into the back area of the shop. So Daryl Croft is like, whoa, hey Eliza, where is this guy going? And Eliza just kind of laughs and says that he's using the restroom. Daryl also states that Eliza said something to the effect of that she wasn't really supposed to let people go use the bathroom, but she made an exception because the guy said that he really had to go. 
However, it's important to note that the restrooms in the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop, both male and female, which were required by city regulations at the time, were actually open to the public. Daryl did try to stick around after paying for his yogurt to get another glimpse of this guy, but he could only stall for so long and finally said his goodbyes to Eliza and Maria and headed towards the door. But he was so preoccupied by this man that when Daryl started to leave, he didn't even grab his yogurt and Eliza had to yell at him before he left the shop. But Daryl does leave and a few minutes later, so does Maria. Soon after, Eliza's father James and his wife would visit the shop for about 15 to 20 minutes. They would recall speaking to Eliza about her economics class and seeing two girls with a Mr. Gotti's pizza box in a booth, but not much else. Between 9.30 and 10.30, there were reports of more customers coming in and out of the shop. Two women, a few couples, and regulars Joseph Saunter and Ava Reed, who stopped by at about 10 p.m., They do spend some time talking to Jennifer and Eliza about their FFA projects, but they eventually leave. Another customer would come forward and report that at about 10.30, they saw a man who was possibly white or Hispanic sitting in an older white vehicle in front of the yogurt shop, not really doing anything, but they felt like he seemed suspicious. And another couple at the yogurt shop that night would state that they saw a suspicious-looking van in the parking lot between 10.30 and 11.00. Now, it's important to note that next to the yogurt shop was a party store. And this store not only shared this attic crawlspace area with the yogurt shop, but the office of the party store also shared a wall with the yogurt shop. On Fridays, the party store closed at 7pm, but that night, owner Jorge Barney closed down the shop and stayed behind, telling investigators that he was hoping to get ahead of the holiday rush. So he went and got a pizza from Mr. Gotti's, put on reruns of Cheers, and got to work. He would report that at 10.30pm he thought he heard a noise on the roof, so he went outside to check on his Christmas decorations, but found that nothing was wrong. So he kind of just shrugged it off and went back to work. Later in the night, Jorge Barney would be the first to see smoke coming from the yogurt shop, but he wouldn't recall hearing anything. Not even a single one of the five gunshots, despite literally being right on the other side of the wall. We are now about one hour away from the fire. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At 10.42, just 18 minutes before the shop was set to close, Eliza rang up the last sale of the night for Tim Stryker and Margaret Sheehan. They had just seen a movie and wanted to grab some dessert before heading home. The couple reports seeing two other customers in the shop, but could only describe them as two large people wearing hooded jackets that were sitting across from each other in the booth closest to the cash register. Unfortunately, they couldn't describe much else about these two people. Not their genders, not their ethnicities, nothing other than one was larger than the other. And the bigger one was wearing some type of beige-colored hooded jacket that was padded and the smaller one had light brown hair. But due to their size, they did assume that they were men. 
this couple states that they saw Eliza behind the counter while Jennifer began closing down the shop, wiping down tables and placing chairs on top of them to clear the floor for mopping. And she was also refilling the napkin dispensers. It's important to note that when investigators examined the shop after the fire, only one booth would still have chairs around it versus on top of it, and that that same booth's napkin dispenser was not refilled. Margaret then hears the girls talking about next week's work schedule and a friend they haven't seen in a long time, and she notices that the people in the hooded jackets appeared to be extremely still and quiet as if they were also listening to the conversation. Margaret really wanted to stay in the shop to eat her yogurt, but they noticed that the girls were obviously trying to clean up for the night and close down the shop, so they decided to give them a break and head out of the store. Margaret believes that was about five minutes after entering the store, which puts us at 10.47 p.m. Margaret and Tim didn't report seeing Sarah or Amy in the shop that night, but a Mr. Gotti's pizza box would later be found in the back of the store on a table near the sink and in and around the sink were the containers from the yogurt toppings, so it's believed that while Jennifer and Eliza were closing down the front of the store, Sarah and Amy were probably sent to the back to work on things like doing the dishes and just cleaning up back there. Now, again, it's important to stress that not only did the yogurt shop have pretty precise protocols in their stores, but Eliza was known for being an absolute stickler for abiding by them which will actually be pretty helpful in determining what might have happened next. Investigators are pretty sure that after the couple left, Eliza, Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy were alone in the store with the two unidentified people in the hooded jackets. They believe that 10 minutes prior to closing, Jennifer turned the sign on the front door from open to closed. She then most likely took their single key to lock the door from the inside to ensure that no other customers entered the store while they finished their closing duties but also allowing for the last two customers to leave if they wanted to. Each night, the employees of the yogurt shop did this with this key. And each night, they would then take the key, lock the store from the outside, and put the key in an envelope and slide it back under the door for the manager the next morning. But the key would still be in the lock on the inside of the door when firefighters later came to put out the fire. After locking the door from the inside, Jennifer then pulled a silver stool over to the yogurt dispensers. That way, she could take the tops off for draining and cleaning, which was the next step in the closing process. Investigators and the manager of the shop, familiar with their closing procedures and Eliza and Jennifer's work, believe that Jennifer was close to or behind the cash register with her back to the front door, while Eliza was wiping down the counters when something happened. Something that interrupted the closing procedure because at this point, Eliza would abandon the rag on the counter and never go back to pick it up. Just after 11, a teenager going to participate in the midnight showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show would report seeing that the yogurt shop lights were still on. At 11.03 p.m., a no-sale would be rung up on the cash register, which means that the cash drawer would open despite there not being an actual transaction. They would later confirm that over $500 was missing from the drawer. At 11.48 p.m., Troy Gay made the first report when he saw fire coming from the hillside strip mall while out patrolling for drunk drivers. When he got closer, he saw Jorge Barney, the owner of the party shop, waving him down at the back of his store. He explained that he'd just seen smoke and opened his back doors to let it out. Officer Gay didn't jump to any conclusions. He figured it was probably just an oven or a stove that had been left on. 
But the yogurt shop had no stove or oven, and by this time, the windows of the shop were completely black from the smoke, making it impossible to see in. And smoke was beginning to billow out from the surrounding connected businesses. Station 8 of the Austin Fire Department sent out five units, an aerial ladder company, an ambulance, an engine company carrying hoses and water, a battalion chief's car, and a victim's rescue team. Specialists from the rescue team, Renee Hector Garza and David DeBoe, went in first to try to find the source of the fire. They opened the locked front door with a crowbar, but smoke was just billowing out from the ceiling and still filling the shop. So they got on their hands and knees in hopes of increasing visibility and avoiding as much smoke as possible. Eventually, they got to the back room and stood up. They were able to find the areas on fire and extinguish the flames. They also determined that the hottest area was in the storage room halfway up the south wall. Putting out these fires created a ton of steam in addition to the pre-existing smoke, so visibility was still extremely limited. Of course, the men were in full fire gear, masks included, so they were used to communicating using hand gestures. But DeVoe didn't have a hand gesture for what he saw next. And he ended up tapping his partner, pointing to the ground, and yelling through his mask, quote, Is that a foot? End quote. The men were obviously startled and took a step back, which is when they discovered the second body. They reported back to their team that they found two victims. They were kids, and they were nude. When they wanted to send in the rescue team, Garza told them not to move the bodies stating that he knew immediately that something was very wrong. Close to midnight, Sergeant John Jones, the only homicide cop on patrol that night, would get the call about two fatalities and a fire at the yogurt shop. He actually had a reporter and a cameraman doing a ride-along with him that night. And after complaining that they weren't seeing enough action and couldn't wait to go to Houston the next day where they'd be sure to see some real crime happen, Jones told them to strap in and get ready. He turned on his lights and sped to the yogurt shop across town. But soon enough, he got another call. They found another body. And just before he got to the scene, another officer would call, stating that a fourth body had been discovered. Jonesy? Yeah. Uh, you hear about the call 2900 West Anderson? Yeah, I'm headed over there. Okay. I'll meet you out there. 2900. 2900? That's, that's a, uh, business. Go ahead, Wayne. The official report would state that the fire started at approximately 11.42 p.m., 
39 minutes after the no sale was rung up on the register by Eliza. The back door was found to be unlocked, and the keys that Eliza used to enter the back room before starting her shift were still on top of the cash register. It is believed that whoever killed these girls entered the store from the unlocked back door or were already inside the shop. But investigators are certain that the perpetrators left through the back door. Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza were all found in the back of the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop. Investigators believe that they were made to undress at gunpoint and then were bound and gagged. They were shot execution style. Sarah, Jennifer, and Eliza were shot once, and Amy was shot twice. While Jennifer, Sarah, and Eliza's bodies were pretty close together near the back door, Amy's body was found further away, closer to the prep table and the restrooms. And she was much less burned than the others. 17-year-old Eliza Thomas was found stacked on top of 15-year-old Sarah Harbison. When investigators found Sarah, her thighs were open, and in between them was an ice cream scoop pointed up towards her pelvis. 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison laid next to Eliza and her sister Sarah, and she sustained the worst burns. Investigators believe that originally she may have been stacked on top of Eliza and Sarah, but that she possibly rolled off during the fire or was pushed off from the high-powered fire hoses. Jennifer had ligature marks on her neck. 13-year-old Amy Ayers was the least burned, but the most battered. She was found with a ligature mark around her neck. She was strangled manually, but not fatally, and she had bruising under her chin from some type of blow. She was shot once on the top left side of her head with a 22 caliber pistol, and again behind her left ear with a 38 caliber pistol. Normally, the protocol in these cases is for the medical examiner to remove the bodies from the scene for further analysis. But because the crime scene had already been destroyed by both the fire and the fire hoses, Sergeant Jones insisted that their remains be processed on the scene before they were moved. His fear was that they would be exposed to possible contamination, or that they would lose any type of trace evidence on the bodies like hairs or fibers. But the medical chief examiner was out of town. So Jones had to deal with Deputy Les Carpenter, who was known for being a stickler for the rules and having a very big ego. He immediately said no to this request. They were his bodies and he would handle it. But after some pushback from Jones and his new partner for this case, Mike Huckabay, that had more seniority than Jones and was a better negotiator, Deputy Medical Examiner Carpenter gave in. But not without protest. While the team processed the bodies of the four girls, he stood over them, just being a general pain in the ass talking down to the Austin Police Department and repeatedly threatening to load the girls up right then and there. Many suspect that his actions would continue to hinder this investigation in a pretty detrimental way. Most people on the scene that night wish that they'd done things differently. They wish that they'd known that the bodies were there before putting out the fire. They wished the scene was processed differently and better. They'd insist on people wearing booties and keeping a strict log of who was coming and going. But they didn't. It only took a few minutes for news crews to arrive to the scene. But Jones knew he couldn't give away too much to the public just yet, and only gave a very limited statement. Okay, at 11.47, one of our patrol officers called in to dispatch 
smoke coming out from, I can't believe it's yogurt. Fire department got here shortly thereafter. What we found in the back there was we found four victims. We're handling it as a homicide right now because it appears that one of the victims was struck in the head. Were the victims together or were they in different parts of the building? No, I can't. Can't give you that either. Were they bound in any way? Can't give you that. Was there any sign of forced entry to the building? Can't give you that. What can you give us? Just what I gave you. It's still very early in the investigation, okay? Because Jennifer and Eliza's cars were still in the parking lot and through the process of elimination, the girls were identified quickly. But now the police had to notify the parents. As you can probably imagine, the stories of these parents finding out that their girls were gone are heart-wrenching. Amy Ayer's mother answered the door and immediately feared that her daughter had been sexually assaulted, having no idea that it was so much worse than that. And when Jennifer and Sarah's mother Barbara was notified, she insisted that her girls were upstairs asleep in their beds, safe and sound. And when she called to tell their father that their only daughters were gone, their only children were gone, all she heard was screaming before he hung up the phone. This is where I'll leave you today. In the next episode, we will dive deeper into what happened to Jennifer, Sarah, Amy, and Eliza, as well as the lengthy and insane investigation into their murders, and the numerous confessions that would be made in this case. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.